Today's reading from God's word is from Matthew chapter 21, the first 27 verses. And I have my glasses on, so I'll do a decent job reading, I think. And just uh, prepare your hearts and minds to receive the word of the Lord this morning. This is the triumphal entry. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs of them, and he shall send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, you have read. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the, and the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have the faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you will tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. 
And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Well, I have to thank Adam for the opportunity to be here with you today and to speak to you. And Adam and his family are getting a well-deserved time of rest out this week. And we look forward to them being back next week. And before we open God's word together from Matthew chapter 21, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us a king that Jesus came with all authority and power and that we have life through him. The kingdom comes through the cross. Father, help us to to see that. Help us to, to apply that in our lives and to know that you have given us life. You have taken us who were in rebellion against you and you've made us your own. And Lord, the one who could come as our judge is the one who intercedes for us. So Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ and that he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord and is to be praised. So help us to live lives of worship and praise in the presence of of our God and Savior. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. When you hear the word king, what do you think of? The concept of a king is something that may be somewhat distant from our own society. We have a concept of what a king is. We see movies and fairy tales and different books and things that talk about a king. We even have phrases in our popular culture that say things like, it's good to be king. We have this idea that it's good to have some sense of authority within our own realm, but even that's distant removed from what it means to have a true king. We have other things in our culture, Burger King. We have, uh, you know, Disneyland with castles. We have a somewhat idealized concept of what it means to be king. Some of you may have read the Lord of the Rings books. And if you haven't seen, read the books, you've probably seen the movies. In the Lord of the Rings, there is this great divide. There's this dichotomy between good and evil. And in the Lord of the Rings, there's these characters who are struggling in the midst of this evil that is ever-present in their midst, and it is increasing and growing, and they are trying to figure out what's going on around them in the midst of this growing presence. And, but there's an undercurrent that develops as the storyline develops in the book. They need a king, a true king, who could set all things right. You know, the stewards of Gondor could not replace the true king, and the kings of men had failed, And what they needed was a king who would rule justly and rightly. When we think of Disney tales, the world is is flattened. If there is evil present, it's bound up in one character. And that character may be a stereotype of evil. 
and almost comical sometimes. But evil is real. It's pervasive, and it's present with us. And that's one thing that the Lord of the Rings gets right. The world is fallen, and there's a grit to it, and there is a cost. There's a cost to our sin, and there's a cost to bring about justice. But I'm here today to tell you that your king has come. We want some level of personal autonomy in our lives. We want to be our own king. And we want everybody else to be their own king too. But, you know, if you were to ask somebody whether there's right and wrong today in our society, we would play down the very concept of right and wrong. And yet, if you were to ask somebody, why is it wrong to steal from you in particular, they would say, suddenly they would get a sense of right and wrong, wouldn't they? (laughs) They would realize that there really is evil present in the world. So despite all of our desires for personal autonomy, we really do want some level of certainty. But our desire for personal autonomy cannot give that certainty to us. In fact, they're in conflict with one another. So when you think about all the stories that appeal to our hearts, we do want justice. And that justice can only come through the one true and just king. And so your king has come. Would you look with me at Matthew 21, verses 10 and 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. There were these great crowds that had come into Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. And they had gathered for this time of feasting when they were to celebrate what the Lord had done in delivering them out of slavery in Egypt. And as the city was crowded and as Jesus came into the city, these people had gathered to praise him. And there was a commotion and the people asked, who was this man? And the answer, Jesus the prophet of Nazareth in Galilee. See, when Jesus had come into Jerusalem, Israel had been waiting a long time for a king. And not just any king. The one true and just Messiah who would set all things right. In chapter 1, Jesus is declaring before him that he is that king. You can look at each of these stories that Omar read for us earlier, each of these accounts. You see him riding in on a donkey, which is symbolic of the Davidic king. You see that he heals the lame which is symbolic of the Messiah, who would heal the people. The children praised him. And in the clearing of the temple and the withering of the fig tree, it shows that judgment had come on the temple system and that he was the one who would judge with all authority. Jesus is the promised king. So the whole Old Testament builds to this point. So, we should probably take a step back and talk about the story as it's unfolded and how we came to this point. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they lost fellowship with God. And the one who was to be their king, they feared now because they had sinned. It says in Genesis chapter 3, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. See, they enjoyed the presence of the Lord in the garden. That was worship, and that was their, their fellowship with him. They knew the Lord personally, and he was their king. And now the one who was to be their king came, and it was to them a terror. You can see that even from the beginning, the problem is not just one of needing a king. It's really a problem of sin. See, the image of God in them had been tarnished. And their relationship with him had been broken. And fallen man will not ever be able to fulfill the role of a truly just king. See, God was their king, but now he was their judge. Many years later, God made his presence known among the people of Israel. In redeeming them from bondage in Egypt, he came and through many mighty wonders and deeds, he took them out of Egypt into the desert and he said that he took them out to worship him. And God was in their presence and he manifest himself before them in the pillar of cloud and he went before them. He was their hero and God prepared them to enter the promised land. And as they came into the promised land, he went before them and he did make his presence known with them. And yet, that generation passed away, and in Judges chapter 2 it says, And all that generation were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. You see, God's presence among them was about relationship. It was about worship. It was about redemption. The Lord had been their hero. He went before them as their king. Now, they had been called to be distinct from the world, and yet... They wanted a king in their own image, a king like Saul. It says in 1 Samuel 8, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so Israel rejected God as king. Yet God was faithful, and he provided David as king, a man after God's own heart. Yet David was a man, and he sinned. And the kings who came after David, their hearts were even more divided. It says they were double-minded. And they took the people off after other things rather than after God. But despite all this, God was faithful. And it said that he would preserve a remnant. And we have in Isaiah 61 the passage that Jesus preaches in the synagogue when he first begins his ministry. And you see here a, a spirit of healing the healing that could only come through the Messiah, the one true king. This was the promise that Israel had been waiting for. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. The prophets expected a coming king who would set all things right. In Zechariah chapter 9, which we open our service with, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. 
humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, Christ had come to set all things right. Even the blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord that they praise him with as he enters Jerusalem is from Psalm 118. It was a psalm of praise during this time of feasting, praise for what God had done for them. See, the true king would come to set up a kingdom, and Christ came to proclaim that kingdom. And in Revelation, we see that the kingdom will come to fulfillment. God will be in their presence, and he will again be their king, and he will say, behold, I make all things new, and they will worship God as king. You see, the kingdom that Christ proclaimed was the fulfillment of all the hopes and promises that were given to Israel. He came saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And yet, what they did not see is for him to rule with justice. He had to come to deal with the sin that had started this whole saga. You can't divorce the concept of the king and dealing with our sin. You see, what they did not see was that the kingdom had to come through the cross. So it's a glorious thing that the king who rules with all authority is also the one who died for us. Anne Steele, a hymn writer, um, in the first verse of one of her hymns, it says, O love incomprehensible that made thee bleed for me, the judge of all has suffered death to set his prisoner free. On thee alone my hope relies Beneath thy cross I fall. My Lord, my life, my sacrifice, my Savior in my all. The king and the servant are one. John Stott, in his classic work, The Cross of Christ, says this, The essential background to the cross, therefore, is a balanced understanding of the gravity of sin and the majesty of God. If we diminish either, we thereby diminish the cross. See, if you recognize that your sin is great, then it will help you to see the glory and majesty of God. It takes a great God to rescue us from our sin, and it's a great God that we have. See, your king has come. Again from Stott, the very word sin has in recent years dropped from most people's vocabulary. It belongs to traditional religious phraseology, which at least in the increasingly secularized West, is now declared by many to be meaningless. Moreover, if and when sin is mentioned, it's most likely to be misunderstood. See, we simply don't recognize sin for what it is. We think of it as something unfortunate, a, a, a minor foible or a transgression, but something that we can control, something that we want to deal with but we fail to recognize the full magnitude of our sin. That it's not just actions that we can just stamp down like whack-a-mole, right? There's something behind it. Our sin is a nature that develops itself in these actions, and it deserves the status of condemnation before God. Yet the king of kings came and died on our behalf to rescue us, not in the judgment that Adam and Eve feared, 
but in the generous love that could only have come through Jesus Christ. So, no earthly king can right all the wrongs that are welled up in the heart of men. Because no earthly king can actually deal with the true problems that we are facing. But what do people really want in life? You know, we, we want certainty, we want stability. We want for our taxes not to be complicated. We want cheesecake for dessert. We want the Redskins to win. <laughs> yeah. And we'd prefer if the evils of this world were not present with us, and we want somebody who can take care of all that. It's, it's kind of the narrative of, of our society. But whether we recognize it or, or not, our sin is ever-present with us, and it is much deeper than we are often willing to admit. We could go a long time pretending that our sin is not that bad, but it will make itself known to us in sometimes the most appalling ways. All of the grievous sins that could come into your life, at one point in your life, you'd like to say, I will never do that. But the capability to do that is there with each one of us. The problem is that if Jesus is not your king, then something else will be your king. So what are the real kings in your life? It really could be anything that we idolize. It could be accomplishment at work, our desire for things, our pride, our desire for acceptance. But what we have to realize is that our idols, they cannot redeem us. They cannot intercede for us. And they will not show compassion to us. Martin Luther said, man must either have a God or an idol. And Calvin said that our hearts are a factory of idols. The problem is that your idols will never be able to forgive you or intercede for you. So we'll never be satisfied in our life or in our politics or in our search for an earthly king. We will never be satisfied until we found rest in the one true king. So Jesus came as the one true king. Sometimes we like to look at Jesus and say that he's an example for us, and there is a sense in which he's an example. It says that he came humbly riding on a donkey. But we will never be able to live in humility before the world the way Jesus did unless we've placed our trust in the promised king who came to redeem us from our sin. So following Christ will be a drudgery for you unless you see him as Savior. And only then will you be able to worship and follow out of an overflow of delight because Christ is the promised king. The temple story is really about two things. It's about worship and it's about judgment. Jesus said that the temple was to be a place of prayer for all nations. And he knew what true worship was about. The temple had been God's presence among the people. And now Jesus comes and he is God's very presence among them. And Jesus is the present king. 
Would you read with me verses 12 and 13? And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold or bought at the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Let's take a moment and consider what the temple meant for Israel. In Exodus 25 through 27, there's this extended section that talks in great detail about the construction of the tabernacle. And all of the great personal sacrifice and effort that it required in order for them to build it. Moses took the commands of the Lord and they followed them as closely as possible it says up on the mountain concerning the implements of the tabernacle that they were to make them after the pattern for them which is being shown to you on the mountain. See, the Israelites worked to follow God's command carefully. It says they employed skillful craftsmen and they didn't have skill saws or craftsman tools. It took great effort to accomplish what they did. This was, in a way, it was a crowning achievement for them. They were trying to do the best they could in service to the Lord. But despite all this great effort, it still was a man-made tent. They used the best materials available to them, wood that would not easily rot and decay, but in the end, it would still decay. Because it was built on the pattern shown to them on the mountain. The priests would faithfully serve, and yet Hebrews says that their work was only a shadow of the true tabernacle in heaven. Their sacrifices were daily and repeated, and only Christ's sacrifice is complete, sufficient, and fully effectual. So later in Matthew, Jesus identifies himself with the temple when he says that in three days I will raise it up again. See, Jesus is the true temple. And the cleansing of the temple shows that judgment has come. Jesus came to offer a better sacrifice on behalf of the people. It was superior to the earthly temple. God can only raise a temple in three days. Or it's only God who could. And only Jesus can offer a better sacrifice. Jesus is the only one who can effectually deal with our sin finally and completely. So the work of the sacrifice under the Old Covenant was laborious, continuous. It was perpetual. My uh, brother-in-law, Daniel, likes to talk about how uh, they raised tomatoes in their backyard growing up. And it wasn't a small garden. It was a rather large garden. And during the summer, they would be out tending the garden daily And he likes to tell the story this way. He says to people that, I was raised on a tomato plantation. And for him, the work was continuous and laborious and perpetual because he did not savor the flavor of tomatoes. So for him, it was great labor and effort. See, under the temple system, there was no final solution for sin. And despite this, do we still want to prove to God that we can take care of it ourselves? See, it's a tribute to the pride of mankind that we think that we can justify ourselves in God's sight. 
We want to say, I've got this. But Christ came to redeem us from our sin as the one true and better sacrifice. It's better than all the Old Testament sacrifices because it's complete and it's eternal. You see, these priests, they faithfully served for their whole lives. And then they would grow old and they would die. And the work was not complete and they had to pass it on to their sons to continue after them. But we can have confidence before God because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Do you have confidence before the Father? Do you know Christ in a way that you have that confidence? His sacrifice on our behalf is complete and we don't have to daily be concerned about atonement for our sin. We can rest in God's provision on our behalf and that brings us joy. So even as he judges as king, we do not fear condemnation because Christ is our advocate. So in the garden, the one who was to come as their king after the fall came as their judge. But Christ, who had all right and authority to judge, comes now as their king and advocate. Do you see what Christ has done for us? So when the people came together into the temple for this time of feasting and memorial of the Passover, it would get crowded. And the crowds would press in and there would be not much room for anybody and they expanded actually the border of Jerusalem legally so that they could count more people as having gone there because there were so thick, full of crowds. And you could see how it would be convenient to have animals available for sacrifice. Yet, the place where these animals were placed was called the courtyard of the Gentiles. It was the place where God-fearing Gentiles could come into the temple and participate in the temple worship. And now these crowds were there and these animals were there and Jesus comes in and sees it. It seems reasonable. It's just a small financial transaction. You know, you're providing for people, so enabling them to worship. But what they did not recognize was that that convenience was offered at the expense of the Gentiles who could not worship there. And the place that was to be a place of worship for all nations now became a place of commerce. So the temple was no longer a place of prayer for all nations. And when Jesus, who is the true temple, comes, the temple officers don't recognize him for who he is. It's so easy to go through the motions of worship, knowing how to move and what to do. And under the temple system how to follow in accordance with what had been commanded and to offer our vow before God. Do we offer vows before God? Do we believe that we have fulfilled our vow? If we say that we have fulfilled our vow, then we are seeing that as what is justifying us in God's sight. 
but only Christ can justify us in God's sight. We can't justify ourselves, even though we are daily tempted to live as if we could. So we should have a heart attitude towards worship that savors God's presence among us. We are creatures who are created for worship. We long for it. So let us worship in joy before the Father. God's presence means that he is reaching out to reestablish that relationship that was broken in the fall. So God sent Christ to reconcile us to himself. And that really is about relationship, and relationship is about worship. If we come before God thinking that we have fulfilled our vow, that is not true worship before the Father. That is like paying a toll so that we can stay on the road a little longer. It's not what God wants from us. He wants our whole heart. And we will never truly worship until we can look to Christ and worship him because he is the rightful king. May our only hope in life and death be that we are one with him who saved us. Christ is the one king who has all authority and power. And having all authority and power means that he will judge And the good thing is that he is a righteous and just king who will judge rightly. Jesus is the just king. So the clearing of the temple and the withering of the fig tree shows that judgment had come on the temple system. The temple had been God's presence among them. And now that Christ came, he himself was God's presence with them. Read with me in verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And then down in verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders and the people came up to him as he was teaching, and they said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So Christ comes into their midst and they do not recognize him for who he is. And applied to our own hearts, we all too want some level of autonomy. We want to be out from under the authority that governs us. It's, it's strange, there's a conflict in us because we desire this autonomy, yet at the same time we long for transcendence that is to have a connection with God. And we also long for belonging. That is to have some connection with something beyond ourselves, with our society, with our culture, with our people. And yet in the midst of this, we still want to maintain our own personal autonomy. And it thwarts our ability to really make a genuine connection. It's really the spirit of our age And it's the contradiction of our generation that in seeking that personal autonomy, we don't find the belonging that would truly give meaning to our lives. You know, it's manifested itself in our culture in a number of ways. There's a decline in corporate identity in in general. There's a decline in marriage, a decline in church membership, 
There's a decline in all sorts of things that would connect us beyond ourselves. The spirit of this age says, who made you my boss? And you can't make me do it. Who gave you this authority? Or it may be softened a bit to a simple, that's your opinion. In one sense, people long to know God, but they'd rather define God for themselves. Their gods are like the idols that Isaiah mocks in Isaiah 40. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces the rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. See, there is one true God that exists whether we believe in him or not, and our desire for autonomy is really rebellion against him. It's just like Israel saying that they wanted an earthly king. We prefer to make a ruler in our own image rather than seeking to know the one who created us. So when you come to these gospel accounts, you see that Jesus' authority, it's real, it's tangible. The people perceive it. It's intrinsic to who he is. And when people come and they hear and they see Jesus teaching and they say that he has authority and they are astonished as they see that he teaches with authority. But it's through that authority that he is the king who will judge. So for there to be a true king, a truly just king, he must rule with all authority. The Lord is the one who will judge the earth. But he is not just the one who will judge the earth, the all-powerful God. He is also the one who came to redeem a people for himself. So the one who could condemn us is the advocate of those who have faith in him. Romans 8, which we've been working through in our fighter verses over the last month or so, 834 says, Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So we need to place ourselves under Christ's authority. As we challenge God's authority, we will be continually frustrated until we have truly trusted in the one who will truly set all things right. That's why the New Testament calls him Lord, because he's the one who will establish a kingdom, the Lord of lords. So in contrast, our idols are empty. If your idol is work, then you will only find true accomplishment in submitting to Christ. If your idol is acceptance, then you will only find your self-worth in being a part of his kingdom. Our desire for things, 
our pride, all these things really point to the same issues because we suffer and we fear the isolation, the loss and decay that comes from the fall. But all these really point to Christ. So the world suffers from the effects of sin, but Christ is the one who came to redeem and restore the world. And those who trust in Christ eagerly await that kingdom. Your king has come. So if you're looking to anything other than Jesus Christ to set all things right and deal with the effects of sin, then you will be disappointed. Because the problem of our sin is more pervasive than we are willing to admit. We fail, we lie, we cheat, and we hurt others, and we deny our sin even to ourselves. We'd like to cover it up, and we'd rather justify ourselves in God's sight. And that's the effect that sin has had on us. We may think that we can deal with it for a time and say, I've got this, but in the end, it will kill us. But there is hope because Christ came to restore all of creation. He came to deal with the effects of the fall, and he is the one true and just king, the ruler of all the earth, and all things were made through him and by him and have their being, and he upholds all of creation. And he came to make all things right. So he longs to make his presence known in your own life today. Your king has come. It's only in him that the problem of sin is dealt with. And it's only those who receive Christ who have passed from death into life. It's only in his death and resurrection and identifying with him that we have life. I pray that you would be able to consider what he did for us on the cross this week and how we have life in his name because he is king. Your king has come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that though we in our hearts have turned from you in so many ways, you remain faithful. And you've shown your faithful to us, faithfulness to us repeatedly, consistently. And it's even impossible for us to comprehend why you love us, but you do. In our sin has separated us, but Christ has reconciled us. So Lord, help us to come before you with confidence. Help us to come before you not in any sort of self-justification, but knowing that it is only in the work of Christ on the cross that we have life. May Christ be our true King. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.